Thanks for being here. We're continuing on our series on how to change, a practical look at the journey of progressive sanctification, what God is doing in our lives as we follow Christ. So I'm going to open our time in prayer, asking for God's blessing and help, and then go from there. Father God, we thank you for gathering us as your people in Christ. We thank you once again for your purposes in not only each of us trusting in him individually, but the corporate nature of our faith, that we are the body of Christ together. We're united to Christ and therefore to one another. And we share the same spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit who is in us, not only unifying us, but sanctifying us and conforming us all into the image of Jesus individually and as a corporate people. And we invite and we ask for those purposes to continue, that your spirit would be working through your word faithfully to conform us to the image of Christ and give me clarity and wisdom and faithfulness in my teaching to that end. Give us all alertness of mind and a wakefulness and softness of heart, discernment to see what you're saying, not only the truths that you're saying, but how they would impact each of our lives. Give us insight into our hearts and the things that are going well and the things that are going poorly and need to change, areas that you might be addressing and seeking to change us and and draw us to joyful repentance and growth in Christ. Uh, We uh, pray that our lives would be pleasing to you as a result. And we thank you that the foundation of our change is Jesus and what he's already done for us and dying for our sins, rising to new life. And we have cleansing and we have forgiveness and we have a righteous status imputed to us in him. All these blessings and many more are ours in Christ. We pray you give us confidence and hope because of what's already ours in him, even as we seek to submit to your process of change in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want you to consider for a moment, again, like last week, I'm not going to ask for uh, solicit sharing answers. This is pretty personal. I want you to consider what you want your life to look like in 10 years. Uh, you know, you might, you might think of this as kind of your 10-year plan or something like that. Not necessarily all the things you want to do to get there, but fast forward to the you of 10 years from now. What do you want to be like? What do you want your life to be like? Just give you a moment to, to ponder that. Maybe jot a few notes down. This is probably something we spend time thinking about just in idle moments of life when we're, we're considering the future, we're considering choices that lie before us. What do I want life to be like? And what am I kind of aiming for with the choices that, that do lie before me? Well, on that note, we'll keep that in the back pocket and keep going. (laughs) You'll see in a moment how it plays into what we're doing. Um, But welcome back to our series on how to change. And again, this is a a practical look at what kind of doctrinally what we call progressive sanctification, God's work of change he's doing in our lives after we've become Christians in this whole era of time following Christ before the end, either our death or Jesus' return. And... um, We know that this is a journey of increasing holiness and righteousness of life and a a journey of putting sin to death progressively in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. And last week we talked about this phenomenon of relatively unfruitful Christians 
Um, those who have perhaps followed Christ for some length of time, maybe many years, uh, maybe they know a lot of truth from the Bible, but there just isn't a real pattern in their lives of growing in grace. There doesn't seem to be uh, a lot of change happening. This person maybe has fallen into some ruts. There are some things that are maybe going well, but there are certain other areas of life where there's kind of sinful ruts and there's not a lot of progress being made. Um, and what did we, we looked at 2 Peter 1, 3 to 9. What did we, in terms of that text, diagnose is the problem of um, why this person is, in terms of 2 Peter, is unfruitful. And again, we say relatively unfruitful. We're not saying this is somebody who there's no fruit at all. Maybe, you know, that might raise questions if this is a Christian at all. But we mean someone who's, again, there, there's, there's relative ineffectiveness and unfruitfulness in this person's life. Yeah, Sherry. Yeah, forgotten where they've come from and what God has done for them. Exactly. And in the terms that Peter uses there in verse uh, 9, he says this person has forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So in particular, he forgets the experience of grace he's already received in the gospel. The past work of Christ that has put him on this new course of following Christ, but there, that's kind of receded into the background. And it's not bearing on his life today. And that's Peter's diagnosis. We call that gospel forgetfulness. And we talked about how we can, we can think of the gospel in the past, both like historically the past, Jesus' death and resurrection. We can think about it kind of biographically in the past. I, I, learned, I heard this message. I believed it. I was forgiven. I was made a child of God. And then uh, we can think about its future implications. Like I'm going to, you know, through all, when, when all this is over, I'm going to be spending eternity with Christ in heaven. Uh, in a new heavens and earth. That's all true and good, but we can forget the now. What does the gospel mean about today? And the, the, the term we use for that following the authors of the book we're following is the gospel gap. Like, what does the gospel have to say about my life right now? And Peter says, if you're forgetting the gospel and how you have been saved, it's going to have an impact on the fruit you are or aren't bearing now. And those fruits are virtues, basically uh, qualities of life that resemble God himself, God's own character. Um, and so we talked about how we, we might try to fill the gospel gap with, with proxies for actual growth, things that kind of look like it. They, they're close. They actually are kind of related, but they're not really the, the, the real thing. They're not really the substance of spiritual growth. So things like uh, church involvement or adherence to a lot of rules, like legalism, like if, if I set rules and keep them, that, that means I'm, I'm growing spiritually. Or... Um, emotional or spiritual highs, like an epic spiritual experience where you go, oh, I really encountered God. These kinds of things might feel like this is the substance of change, but none of that is the substance of change. Um, and we talked about false human philosophies, uh, teaching or, or kind of assumptions that are sort of out there in the air, in the ether, that might captivate us, as Paul warns against human philosophies in, in Colossians 2, captivating us. Uh, things that we might think this is where real change is going to be found. Things like my outward circumstances. If I can just have some change in my circumstances, my, my, my life will be better. Things will be as they ought to be. Or even if I can just change some behaviors, if I can instill some new habits, uh, instill some new practices, then that'll be it. Or if I can just adopt some new patterns of, say, positive thinking or things like that, counting my blessings and so on. So we, we talked about these things that, again, there may be a measure of truth in a lot of these, but they're not the heart of change. This is not where real change, sanctification, is actually going to occur. 
These are all relatively superficial. Um, and, and by contrast, in Colossians 2, Paul, Paul said, don't be captivated by those human philosophies. Instead, you have what's his alternative is kind of the power of sanctification. You can be really, give the Sunday school answer, be broad. What, what was that? Jesus. Jesus. Yeah, it's Jesus. Yeah, it, the shoe fits this time. It's you have fullness in Christ. All the, the deity dwells, all the fullness of God dwells in Christ. You have been filled up in him, he says. And so you have a new record. You have forgiveness of sins. You have uh, new life. He talks about regeneration there. Uh, you've been set free from the power of Satan and, and, and uh, you've been brought into the kingdom of light. So there's all these resources we have in the fullness of Christ and his gospel work for us. That's the real power of life change. It's not kind of nifty sounding human philosophies or things that just sort of make sense on a human level. Um, now, today we're going to look at another foundational matter with regard to change, and that is what kind of change are we talking about um, and it seems like a very fundamental question whenever we talk about change, and yet it's so easy to not ask this question, which is changing into what? What is the goal of the change that God wants to do in your life? And I want to think about, as an example, think of electoral politics, okay? We have debates, if you can call them that. <laughs> We have marketing, we have ads, we have messaging coming out our ears, and everyone's trying to make a case for why to vote for them. Vote for me, and usually it kind of boils down to like some kind of personal qualities. Vote for me because I can get it done. My opponent's a loser, a criminal, whatever. Um, and <laughs> incompetent or worse. Sometimes there's policy discussions, but even that, it's like, I'll do this, I'll do this, and there's not necessarily like a, there's sort of actions I'll take. But what usually goes unaddressed is this fundamental question of where do you want to take us? Like political philosophy. Like what do you think a good society would be? I would love if everyone would be pinned down and forced to answer. Like what is, what do you want America to be like? And how is it different than what he wants America to be like? Um, what's a healthy society? What does human flourishing mean? What's the government's role in promoting human flourishing? Like these are the kinds of things that really, they're really important questions. Like where are you taking me? Where do you want to take me? What's the vision that is going to guide? Everyone's talking about change, but change to what, right? And that's kind of the same. We, we could be, now, in this course, we've said we want to be practical. We're not just going to talk theology the whole time. We do a lot of theology at this church, and we don't apologize for that. It's important. But we also got to get practical about training. What does this look like in our lives? And yet, <laughs> we don't want to be so pragmatic that we suddenly start talking how from the get-go. Like, how can God change you before, again, having this vision for what is God even trying to change you into? What's the goal? What's the direction of what the change that he's doing in your life? We don't want to jump into the how without having some sense of the to what. And one reason why that's important is because, this is the rub, God's how of changing you will often conflict with your what of where you might want to see change happen. So often we have certain, and we'll get into this, we have certain desires of what, what we want life to turn into. And God's way of changing us will, will drive straight into that like a freight train into a bus that's, that's on the tracks. And we'll get confused and we'll be frustrated and we will not understand. This is the change that God is meaning to do in your life. Does that make sense? So just a sense of we're going to be really disappointed and confused 
if we don't know where is God taking you? Any questions or thoughts so far? All right. This is kind of a, a funny heading for our thing, but whatever. Meaning making change dreamers. You're like, that sounds really weird. Well, stick with me. We'll, we'll, we'll tease this out. See, part of what it means to be in God's image is that we pay attention to stories and we tell ourselves stories and we, we try to think about how life works, how the world works in kind of story form. Um, every human being has some sense of what story is playing out in the world um, and where we exist within that, what my life means relative to that story. You have kind of a progress narrative that a lot of people assume, like we're getting better and better. It's kind of maybe a, a, a Darwinistic thing, like we're, society is getting better, everything's becoming more just or whatever. Uh, everyone has these stories, like what's happening in the world, where is everything going, and where does my life fit into that? Um, I'm convinced that people who have no sense of that and no regard for that are basically nihilists who purely, truly think nothing matters. It's all chaos. And pretty much nobody can live that way. I think you're very, honestly very close to suicide, if you, sadly, if you really believe that. Thankfully, not many people really believe that. Uh, but what does this mean for us? We all, whether we, whether we think about it consciously or not, we have some vision for what story our life is, is happening in. And what that means about our own history. Now, we, we know where we've come from. You could tell a story about your life, uh, your upbringing, your past experiences. And we know certain things about our current state. And we have certain desires and expectations for our future. But it's deeper than just, well, I know some things about the past and the present, and I desire certain things for the future. There's, there's also a deeper sense of, like, what, what label would we call this whole story? Does that make sense? We think of, you know, the fancy terms of meta-narrative. Like, what, what is this thing all about? And there are certain examples maybe we have in stories in, in literature, like the rags-to-riches story. You know, like, that's a, that's a sort of an overarching picture of this is the story of someone's life. Rags-to-riches. Or someone, say, who grew up in a tough environment, and they had to overcome adversity, and they want to give their kids a better life than they had. Like, that could be sort of the overarching story that you are telling yourself about what life is, what your life means. And as we go through life, we're constantly assigning meaning to events, and we're saying, like, what will this event mean relative to the whole story when the story is told? Sometimes that's what gives events their, their weightiness. Um, there might be something that happens that makes us say, is, that, is this the beginning of the end of my marriage? Or was this a big opportunity that could have totally changed my life that I let pass me by? Um, or was that, that thing that just happened just a positive turning point that will change the rest of my life? We kind of ask ourselves these questions because we're sort of trying to discern what's the story. And uh, I'll, I'll, for an example, think of a young man who has just uh, asked a gal out that, he, that he's interested in on a date, and she says yes. How does he feel? He's pretty excited. Is he excited because he's going to have a fun evening? No, it goes a lot deeper than that, right? He's excited because there's this potential, like this could be, like where could this lead? Like he has this story in mind of this event could fit into, maybe we'll get married or maybe this will lead to something that lasts, that kind of a deal. So now that all probably seems very fake. What are we talking about? What does this mean for the course topic? Well, we all sense that our lives are not as they should be. And we all have some I would say dreams in our minds and hearts about what kind of change we want to see our lives leading to. And that's why I asked you the question, what do you want to see, what do you think, or, or what did I say, what do you want your life to look like in 10 years? 
is we all have some narrative that we're like, I think and hope this is where everything's going to be going. And uh, here's the problem. We, we dream about these changes. We think about these changes. We make decisions and steps toward these changes. But often, our authors point out, our desires don't go deep enough because the Bible has, has ways that it, it, was, it wants to challenge our dreams and pressure our dreams for what kind of changes that we want to see in our lives. So um, specifically, a lot of the problems about what we hope life leads to is, is kind of superficial. It has to do with our circumstances. It has to do with things, our conditions kind of outside of us and not as much to do with our hearts, the very deep inner person that the Bible is primarily concerned about. When we ask the question is, how does God want to change? What is he, when he looks at us, what does he see the change that's most needed? It's our hearts. That's what this whole class is about. It's about sanctification. And sadly, and honestly, often when we're like, man, I really hope X, Y, and Z changes, we're often not thinking in terms of heart change in ourselves. We're often thinking in terms of various kinds of Maybe I hope this person changes in my life, or I hope some financial situation changes, or I hope uh, some kind of work. You know, it's, it's kind of like the things that are around us, and they, they often have less to do with our hearts. So um, we are kind of faced with a fork in the road, and this leads us to this question number three, whose agenda and whose vision? We have this fork in the road where if we're going to have God change us, let him change us. The question that we have to ask ourselves is whose agenda for change is going to prevail? Whose agenda for change are we going to root for and want? Um, And I don't mean to imply that sanctification is not on our agenda at all. Like we're completely carnal and all we want is like more money and stuff like that. But if we're honest, I think we can all say there's a mixture at least. There's a mixture where we might see heart issues, sins that we want to see change, but then there's also outward circumstances. Things we want, we want life to be easier, right? We want certain things, certain problems to go away. So this is a question lying before each of us and our hearts as we take this course about biblical change. Um, who, whose agenda will we root for? Will it be ours or God's? Whose, whose agenda will we accept and welcome? Will it be mine or God's? And often in love, God wants to override our our own agenda, our own plans for what kind of change is going to happen. So I'm going to take us first back to the text we, we were at last week, 1 Peter 1, and just looking at verses 3 to 4 this time. Um, I want you to listen, because someone will be willing to read in a moment, First Peter, 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. Yeah, Tyler, thanks. And as we listen to Tyler reading this, I want you to tune your ear to the question of, what is the goal of change? Like, what's the outcome or the product of change that God means by, by his work in us? So go ahead, Tyler. Second uh, Peter 1, 3, and 4. Uh-huh. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Thank you. And then he goes on to talk about these qualities of life that, that grow uh, from that, if things are working as they're supposed to, uh, as a Christian. But what, from those two verses, what, do, what sense do we get of the where God is taking us? 
What's his agenda for our lives? That we would become more like him. Okay, where do you see that? Become more like him? Yeah, so he says um, in verse 4 that you may become partakers of the divine nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, partakers of the divine nature. Now, I think there's a sense in which just in being in union with Christ, we're already experienced that in a positional way. But yeah, he goes on to talk about qualities of life. And so, there, yeah, it seems like he's saying so that you may become more fully in practice partakers of God, God-likeness in these qualities of life. So yeah, he wants us to be like him. It's part of the plan. That's, that is the plan. <laughs> it's one way of putting it. Any other insights? Yeah, so it's kind of the negative counterpart, right? So there's a, there's a putting on and putting off. That's an, a common biblical pattern. So becoming partakers of the divine nature, which the flip side of that is escaping worldly corruption, evil. So putting off evil ways that, are, that we brought in, you know, uh, our, our indwelling sin, and putting on increasingly God-likeness. I think a shorthand of that whole thing is where he says, all things that pertain to life and godliness. And I last week argued that essentially that means a godly life. It's kind of a, a, a singular concept. Um, and so a godly life is one in which we increasingly partake of the divine nature and escape the corruption that's in the world, the evil that's in the world that our hearts know all too well. So this is, this is what God has equipped us for. Says so He's given us everything we need for this. Again, the Bible doesn't tell us how to file our taxes. That's related, right? It's related to a godly life, but the, the, the real agenda, the real direction of change is godliness. Yeah, Seth. Right, I just want to take a moment to kind of focus on the fact that he has given us everything. Yes. Something in my own life that has been making a huge impact. Because it can be really easy to, you know, understand, you know, God is all-powerful when you believe that, when you believe that Jesus incarnated himself and got on cross for our sins. But just remember the fact that he is accessible. Yeah. Yep. And through that spirit, we can have everything we need. Yep. And just, um, it's, it's been hard for me to like really have faith in that and accept that. Yep. Sometimes change can seem so so slow or so impossible, but just meditating on that, 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 that you know, there's several other passages in the Bible that talk about what the, what the spirit's role is in uh, allowing us to live a godly life. So I just want to take, just have, have everybody think about that. Yeah, that's a good word that. He's not just saying, okay, I've saved you, now change. He's saying, I have fully stocked the pantry, so to speak, for all you need for, yeah, and his, his promises, that's right there, it's like his Holy Spirit dwelling in us to actually move our hearts towards this direction, to write the law in our hearts and to make that change what we actually want. That's why I, I appeal to you as New Covenant uh, believers in Christ to say, we do struggle with wanting the wrong things, but the God, this godly change, if you're a believer in Christ, there is something in your heart that deeply desires this, and that's because you have the Holy Spirit. So that's a good word, Seth. Just to give hope, God is in you changing you uh, if you're in Christ. All these resources are yours, that, all things that, that we need. So, um, so devotion to God, that's what godliness means, devotion to God. A likeness to God, moving away from worldly corruption. That's what, that's what Christ is meaning to do in your life. Now, again, I would ask you to compare with the, some of the things you thought of earlier on about 10 years from now, uh, changes you want to see in your life. 
Uh, and some of you thought of probably of things that pertain to godliness, but probably we, we, we tend to knee-jerk to circumstantial changes. I want that promotion. I want this problem, this relational problem to go away, um, et cetera. This health, I mean, they're, they're, and they're real, don't want to deny, these are real problems and real pains and trials. The Bible is very realistic about those things. Scarcity and physical ailments, these matter. But often that's the first thing we think of. It's like, this is the change I want to see in my life. And God is saying, hmm, different, different dimension is what I'm interested in here. Um, so often our, our desires will boil down to some kind of comfort, self-fulfillment, things like that. Our authors challenge us, quote, positive personal change takes place when my dreams of change line up with God's purposes for change. As I leave behind goals of personal comfort and self-fulfillment, I reach out for Christ. I want to be more like him each day. As I do, I become more prepared for my ultimate destination, eternity with him. End quote. Now, I know that most of us probably know this intellectually. This is not a real new thing like, oh, I didn't know God was trying to make me holy. (laughs) Some of you may not have known that, I don't know. But uh, a lot of us probably know that theologically. But again, there's a gap in practice in the actual activity of our hearts between what we know God wants for us and what we earnestly think would be happy. And we sometimes have moments when we know God is doing something that's going to sanctify us and it's miserable. And we say, I don't really want that. Like the Bible says, this is so that you'll, you know, Hebrews 12, discipline leads to the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. And you're like, yeah, I don't want the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I just want the thing that discipline is threatening. And so that's why, again, this isn't just intellectual. This is like desires. This is the activity of our hearts in these moments is we have to be convinced that where God is taking us is better than where we would take ourselves. So what are some ways that we might become aware of that gap? If there is a gap between what our hearts really want change to look like or what, what we, direction we really want for our lives and what we know God wants for our lives, how are some ways we might gauge that or a kind of ways that we might measure the gap and, and become aware of it? Yeah, Matt. Um, I think often how we respond when the thing we're yearning for doesn't happen. So yes. Yes. Probably a good indication. Yes. So, um, very good. So, when the thing is threatened, and we and we respond with sin, or we respond with sin to the prospect of it being threatened, that's like alarm bell uh, that that we're we're putting this thing over holiness. God's God's aim for our lives is godliness. Things that make us anxious if they're being threatened. Yeah, it's a really good one. What other? Are there any other ways we could gauge that? Yeah, Zach could talk to other people about it. Mm-hmm. Just ask people you trust. Bring people in on the desires that you have. Okay. And so, like, ask them to tell you what they see in you. Yeah, or even just if you have these desires and you're not sure uh-huh. that they are in line with what God wants for you. Oh, I see. Yeah. So you may have certain life things you do want, and you're trying to discern, is this consistent with God's... 
Yeah, that's a good point. You can invite others to kind of help you wrestle with that. Because often there are changes that are good. There are like circumstantial changes that we might want for good reasons, but also maybe it's mixed with bad reasons. The other thing too is there might be some discernment needed of even what are what's all going into why I want this thing in my life. You know, that's a that's a good that's a really good point. Yeah, Christina. Spend time in prayer for that thing and for <laughs> yeah. that thing and about your attitude about that mm-hmm. thing and about whether you know I I just know that so often with me like when I start praying about it my heart starts changing about it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. The Holy Spirit at work. So praying for the things that we know we should want and maybe praying for the things that you mean praying for the things that we do want maybe asking God to show us if we should want it that kind of thing or yeah like you know the Philippians 4 6 7 6 through 7 you yeah know, be anxious but prayer and petition yeah your request be known to God and um, and just in the sense of like I think so often you know whether it's like you know something superficial or something like you know more serious you know that yeah maybe, like we forget to pray about it first and then we to be yeah. Thinking like God wants us to. Yeah, prayer can prayer can clarify so much and, and invite God to do his work. Yeah. Yeah, Seth. Yeah. Although and then like several times are like immediately when when she got to that point, then whatever what she had wanted, she got. Yeah. Yeah, and it may turn out that way, it may not, but that's a really good and and that dovetailing what Matt said, like there's something that if it's being threatened, we, we respond with sin, we respond with anxiety, we you know, whatever. That's a good next step is to go, God, mm, there's a contentment thing. Go stop, listen to the whole series on contentment we did last year. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Or read Jeremiah Burroughs' book, whichever is easier. Uh, no, but it, it, we're getting into this heart contentment issue of like, can I be happy with God and with Christ, even though this thing that, even if it's a, it's, just, it's complicated, it's often good things. Like, I want this health, this pain to go away, right? It's like a health problem. That's not a, our bodies matter. It's not a bad thing. God's merciful. But it's a matter of like, am I in this idolatrous thing where like, I can't, I will not be happy unless you do this. So yeah, this, God will use these things to test us to draw us into a place of contentment, re- repentance toward contentment, and then he may or may not give that gift. But either way, what he's after is happening, which is sanctification. Yeah, Christina. Yeah, that's also like my, and I can have a lot of pride and self-confidence mm-hmm. in my ability to, you know, make things happen or whatever else it is. And by like, God withholding these things so often until I am like recognizing my dependence on Him. Yeah. Yeah. Like, even if it is like like a good thing for my own change, like I need him to give yeah. me patience. I need him to give me love and kindness. And yeah. Control, you know? Yeah. Like, you know, it's like, and um, so like even if these are good things that he wants for me, I need to know that it's him giving it to me, not me in my greatness. Yeah. God's role is not just to 
on high like drop trials and afflictions and be like, figure this out, you know? But he is ordaining that and he's with us by means of his spirit actually doing the heart, the heart work to, to, to interface with, with his word, his promises, the gospel, all that's the gospel gap, remember? All that we have in Christ and as we, as we ride over those, those bumps, that's how he's changing us, yeah. So good stuff. I want to keep moving on and um, appreciate everyone's input. This is really helpful. And talk a little bit more about, we've kind of already gotten there, but where God is taking you, like a little bit more filling this, this category out of what God is actually meaning to do in our lives um, what is the finish line of a good life of progressive sanctification? And there's a lot of biblical passages that we could look to that I don't think there's any one that totally spells it out in detail. But there's one that's really good that we'll look at, and it's uh, Philippians 1, verses 3 to 11. And let's just read this. If I could have a reader in a moment, uh, would someone be willing to queue up and be ready to read it? Uh, yeah, Chinway, thanks. And as we listen to Chinway reading these verses, first, uh, Philippians 1, 3 to 11, Listen for what kind of growth the Apostle Paul wants to see in believers in Philippi. But before we read, I want to ask, what's Paul's own situation as he writes Philippians? Jason's preached out of Philippians a little bit recently, so it might be a little fresher for us. How's Paul doing? He's in prison. Things are going great. <laughs> Writing for prison. Locked up. Um, so that's a good, that's, that's like a good foundational thing to remember as we read Philippians. Um, all right, go ahead, Chinway. Thanks. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the God is my witness, are you for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may prove what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless before the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. All right, so this is a, one of the most famous verses in Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. It's a great verse for this course. But uh, what might that beginning be for these Christians? He says, he began a good work in you. What does that allude to? Or what is that referring to, you think? Salvation. Salvation, yeah. He's not talking about creation here, right? Like he made you. He's talking about how he, we could say, he placed you in Christ, right? All that happened in your conversion. You heard the gospel he gave you the eyes to see Christ. He gave you the faith. You, 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 you repented of sin. You trusted in Christ. All those, you know, you were justified in him. Uh, you were forgiven of your sins. You were cleansed. That's the start. Right? You were placed in Christ. And then what's the promise or what's the assurance Paul is articulating there in the, the second half of that verse? He will be faithful to complete it. He will be faithful to complete it. So what began in that placing you in Christ. He's going to keep maturing you in Christ to some end point. He'll complete it faithfully. Right. Um, now, what will this work lead to? What kind of qualities does Paul envision will be the fruit of that, that uh, pedagogy, we could say, that course of, of, of education and change that God is doing in their lives? What, what, is, what are the outcomes 
Oh, yeah, Tom. Be filled with the fruit of righteousness? Yeah, the fruit of righteousness, yeah. So there's that fruit metaphor again. It's all over the Bible. Righteousness. There's others. Yeah. It says in verse 9 that their love would abound more and more. Yeah, a love that just abounds. It's like overflowing fountain of love from their lives. Abounding, abounding more and more and more. Purity, blamelessness. So there's, there's uh, yeah, yeah, purity and blamelessness. I don't have to explain that a lot. Say, holiness. Knowledge and discernment. I love that. Love abounding with knowledge and discernment. That is a beautiful combination. Um, knowledge of Christ, discernment about what's true and what's good and what's beautiful and what's not, what's godly and what's not. So these are, these are wonderful qualities that are Christ-like. And, and what's the end point in view of all those? So he's saying, I'm basically praying... And we talked a bit about, you know, your prayers will often reveal what's important to you. Paul's like, here's what I want for y'all. And by the way, some of you ladies read through this D.A. Carson book on Paul's prayers a little while ago. This is probably one of them. Great, rich study. Like, what does Paul think is important for people? <laughs> it's a great study. And this is, this is so, like, what, what does this apostle who's been authorized by Christ to, to, to plant and nurture his churches, what does he think is the most important things to ask God for in people's lives? And it's these qualities increasing. Uh, to what end? What's like the end point that he has in view? To the glory of God. To the glory and praise of God, yeah. And there's a kind of a, there's kind of a chronological end point, the day of Christ, probably referring to Christ's return, kind of the end toward which everything is headed. And it, it ends in the praise of God, the glory of God. So um, all this will make sense especially in view of eternity and especially in view of Christ's return. He's, he's a sense of being prepared for this day, like a, a final exam or something, like uh, certain things make sense in view of a certain day that's coming. I'm not saying he's going to come and examine and, and you fail the test, you weren't sanctified enough. That's not what I'm saying. But this idea of what's coming at the end will make sense of the, the progress of change toward it. Um, now, again, though, let's look to Paul himself for a moment. What, what difference does it make looking at what Paul says here, thinking that he's in prison? Is there anything surprising or ironic here in this text, given that it's coming from the hand of an incarcerated man in prison for the gospel? Yeah, that externally, it seems like his life is getting worse. Yeah. For sure. Right. What do you think internally? Does he feel that way? Is he like, man, it's, it's real dark. I don't know. And there's places for that. There's psalms like that. But does he sound like he's despairing? He's grateful. He's grateful. He calls himself a partaker of grace in my imprisonment <laughs> and the defense and confirmation of the gospel. He talks about his joy, making my prayer with joy. So Paul's an example, too, of a guy who... Um, Paul can look at life with a certain lens. And what Paul sees is himself in prison for Christ. And he's like, yeah, 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 okay. But what I really love is Christ-like virtue exploding from people's lives. You know what I'm saying? Here's a guy who does not have it outwardly. And it almost is like incidental to him. He's like, yeah, God's given me grace in this. Well, here's what I want for you guys. I want you to be more like Jesus. I want you to be ready for the day of Christ. I want you to be filled with love and discernment and righteousness so that God is praised. 
So you see this weighing, of, weighing in the scales of like my outward circumstances and the things God is doing in people's lives. And you can see how much they weigh relative to each other. This is an example of somebody who is tuned into Christ's change agenda for himself and for others. Does that make sense? Imprisonment is almost incidental. He's like, yeah, there's, there's benefits. You know, like, there's, there's good things. He says later on, literally, later on in this chapter, he's like, well, there's some, there's some benefits to me being in prison. And I know this will turn out for my deliverance. It's like he's saying, I don't know what the, exactly the outcome of all this is circumstantially, but what, what matters is your purity, your love, your likeness to Christ. You're being prepared for Jesus when he returns. And so that's why I said earlier, we have this fork in the road that we're all, as we consider sanctification and God's desires to change our lives, we have a fork in the road of, um, it will be God's change or mine that I welcome and that I desire. And, and, and it's, of course, it's a process and it's a continual process to keep desiring and learning to more deeply desire the, the course that God has us on and to identify the maybe immaturities and problems with the things that I may have picked for myself. And, and there, again, some of those things are good things, but we just we don't know if they're the best for us. Um, you can want that promotion, but there's a sense of loose-handed, kind of Zach was talking about sifting through, why do I want this? There's a sense of loose-handed. It's like, that may or may not be what God wants for me. It may not be my best. But the dimension that matters is my holiness, my sanctification, my being like Jesus. And so that's how we're measuring good and bad developments, ultimately. Whose measuring stick am I going to use for life and for change? Um, and again, one of the reasons this is important is because, as we've seen in Paul, in, in so many places, one of God's most effective tools for working change in our lives is threatening the things that, that we put on our list, our change list, right? Um, so think about the outward circumstances of your life. Some of the, some of the, the friction points that frustrate you the most um, maybe you're discontent with your job. Maybe you're struggling academically. Um, maybe you have, there's, a, there's someone that Christ has called you to love in your life, and they just sap the life out of you. And you're like, really, really? I just wish this person was not in my life. It feels like such a waste of time and effort and energy. What are all the things I could be doing um, if, you know, life would be just smoother. But, like, think of all the other things I could be doing if I didn't have to deal with this person. Like, we can struggle with these, these desires and these, these thoughts. Um, you're not giving, getting dividends in the human plane, right, of joy and, and thankfulness from that person. And you're like, I want to change. I'm wasting my life. I don't want to be doing this. Well, again, that analysis runs the risk of totally missing the good and constructive things that God is doing in your life through that. Like, often we feel like we're missing out. Like, this is such a waste. I'm missing it. And God's like, remember, I'm sanctifying you. You're not missing it. This is it. This is, this, this is school's in session. Like, this, is the most, this is the best way to get you there, is this frustrating, challenging, sapping circumstance that he has you in. Fearful, uncertain, etc. So some of our angst about our lives and some of our discontentment about our lives is because we have our map turned around about where change is needing to lead to. Um, now, one of, the, one of the most important tools the Bible gives us for making sense of this in our lives is an eternal perspective. And we're going to look at that. It's going to be our last kind of major 
item we look at is how, what difference an eternal perspective makes. But is there, I appreciate the engagement we've gotten and it's kind of free flowing as, as people think of things. Does anyone have uh, other thoughts or questions or reflections at this point with what we're talking about? Yeah, Matt. I have a, I have a thought. Just, um, you know, we talk about being conformed into the image of Christ as mm -hmm. kind of a model. You know, this yeah. is what we're moving toward. Um, but I also think there's something to consider about our our devotion and love for Christ Himself being the end all be all of yeah. what God is aiming to do. That we would be one, just as Christ and the Father are one. Mm -hmm. That God is relentless in eradicating in our lives anything that would yeah. And so there's this sense in which Christ likeness is an aim, but Christ is the aim mm -hmm. in, in that sense that that he's seeking to work through the circumstances and challenges in our lives that reveal mm -hmm. our, our divided hearts. Yeah. Um, and he brings about circumstances that he aims to use to help us to see that. Yeah. Our division in, in hopes that because, you know, even Paul's prayers in Ephesians is that we would know the love of Christ and what, yeah. that's a relational, yep. that's a relational um, goal, you know, so. Yeah. So we could abstract Christ-likeness into kind of a list of character qualities and kind of miss Christ himself. And those are all good qualities, but sort of the heart of it all is devotion to Christ, love of, growing love for Christ. That's a very good word, that experiencing his love and learning to love him with a pure and pure heart. Um, yeah, it's a very good point. That um, That's kind of, I think, implicit in the word godliness, because godliness is devotion to God that produces other quality, kind of like sort of the, we talked about this in respectable sins, like ungodliness is sort of like the master sin, at least that's what Jerry Bridges argued, but sort of like a heart that's fixed on Christ himself that then produces all these other qualities. Related to that. Michelle, did you have a thought? Um, I was just going to kind of piggyback on that. It's like that as you move into perspective, but it's it's kind of what Matt was saying. It's in our trials and in this process of change, it's actually it's enjoying the process, right? Mm -hmm. Because that's where Christ is. Mm -hmm. So changing that perspective of like wanting to get out or wanting to be at point B already, mm -hmm. instead of like fighting that process, changing that perspective of this is where Christ is at, mm -hmm. this is where I can find joy, and this is where I'm to be. Yeah. That's, a, that's an excellent word, Michelle. I'd say yes and no. <laughs> no, I would say yes and, not even no. Yes and. The yes is... Again, the journey with Christ and sanctification is the most joyful life we could have under the sun, right? As I kind of was saying, like, this is it. It's not like, well, when, when this problem's over, then I'll really live. It's like, you're, you're near to Christ. This is really living. And I think of, like, 2 Corinthians where he talks about, my power is perfected in your, weak, in your weakness. And Paul's like, get this weakness out of the way. So he's like, no, 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 this is it. Like Christ is saying, this is it. I get to show my, my power. I get to, and he says, I'll enjoy the fellowship. Uh, he talks about enjoying fellowship with him, I think, there. So, yes, but the and is there is a final, final outcome in which it's 
the tears and suffering and sighing are over. And it's okay to long for that. But, it's, but what your point is totally right is that's not going to happen in this life. So we can look around at other ways life might look now and say that's really what life, that would be living. Not this ugly course of sanctification. And you're totally right to say, no, this is the best. Like, this is the best that life could be in this life, is with Christ on the road of sanctification. But the, the happy news is sometimes you're, you're tearful, sometimes you're desperate, sometimes you're agonizing, and it's like it is going to lead to an outcome where all that ends. And you're perfectly holy, and all the suffering and sorrows and death are gone. Amen. Yeah. But that's a good word, Michelle. Yeah, Blake. Yeah, just to piggyback on your comment just now, I think one good thing to remember about the Lord is that there are no real hypothetical situations in life because we may think God is God might do this or might do that in a, in a different situation. But the reality is what's happening right now, even though sin is difficult and dangerous in our lives, God is guiding everything in a perfect way. Mm-hmm. We can remember that he's trustworthy mm-hmm. in guiding and sanctifying us and guiding our lives because like, hypothetical situations don't matter. What's happening right now yeah. is the best way God can make them happen. And so, yeah. And the thing about sin is that as difficult and dangerous as it is, as much as we should avoid it, the silver lining about sin is that it shows that we still need God. Mm-hmm. We still need his help. And we still need him to supply his strength to our weakness. And yeah. And it often sin drives us not only to confess and repent for our sin, but to ask for his help. Yeah, that's true. Those are both very good points. So the hypothetical, wouldn't it be better if? And it's like, you got a sovereign, wise God who, 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 who wrote this whole plan out. There's no... Yeah, don't don't sweat those hypotheticals. This is this is his road for you toward toward joy and holiness. Yeah, Christina, and then we'll, we'll last word on this, and then we'll go on to the last point. I love this engagement. Honestly, it's really really good. Yeah. Well, I'll just piggybacking on yeah. Everybody else here, but like you know, it's like it's a, it really is a wholeness, you know, not a balance. Of yeah, I, <laughs> Greg would approve of that. <laughs> Yeah. And um, and him adding those things to us, and, and yet also like and even the you know the Lord's prayer of your kingdom come, your will be yeah. on earth as it is in heaven. To live as Christ, to die as gain. You know, it's like and you know with the the end of the race being that we yeah. will be with Christ in it. Yeah. And, you know, come Lord Jesus, and and I I know that as I get older, you know, it's like the sweetness of that yeah. the end of that race is is much more beautiful than it was when I was. Mm-hmm. And, I, uh, and I just think that like it's it all works together. I don't know how it all works together. Yeah. But it does work together in the sense of like he does want us to pay for his kingdom yeah. as it is in heaven, and he does want us to look forward to the end of it all when yeah. we are with him. Yeah, and one of the ways is to so that yeah, there's a there's a yes. It's just a kind of yes and is like Lord come quickly, and a heart that's more and more set on eternity is part of what the change God wants to grow in us. And seeking first his kingdom at the same time as enjoying him peacefully, contentedly at his side, like a wean child, uh, content through all the storms or whatever in this life. Like Michelle said, being with Christ on this road of sanctification and just enjoying that for it is. One of the ways those two meet is that that hope 
is what makes this journey sweet. Is that like, this is leading to that, therefore I can rest today in what, what this looks like, this sanctification looks like today. All very, very good. Appreciate everyone sharing. Um, let's talk about the difference attorney makes. It's just going to sort of feed more and more into that. Our authors say, everything God does and everything God calls us to only makes sense from the perspective of eternity. And um, we're going to look at Revelation 7, verses 9 to 17 to, to get a picture of this eternal perspective. We're going to read this, and I, I hope we can skirt around some of the more difficult <laughs> eschatological questions as we deal with Revelation. But this is a really powerful picture of people who um, are partaking of that kind of e- eternal reward, eternal joy, um, looking back on their lives, looking back on their road, their, their, um, their journey that God had them on. So would someone read Revelation 7, verses 9 to 17? Yeah, Matt Boy. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Thank you. So we have, who are these, the ones coming out of the Great Tribulation? And again, I'm going to sort of set aside the, the question of, like, what exact group of Christians is this at what point in history? I don't think we need to agree on that to still understand qualitatively uh, the experience that these people are having and, and how it pertains to the life that they endured in, the, in this world. So um, how is their suffering reflected? How do we know these people suffered in their lives? They were very lasting. Mm. Right, there are tears in their eyes. Good. Even up a verse from there. Or, yeah, hunger, thirst. Scorching heat, I mean, this will no longer happen. The hunger, the thirst, the scorching heat, they've been rescued. And even going back a verse from there, they're sheltered in his presence. So there's this idea that they were vulnerable to a, uh, a, a difficult world, uh, that sort of they were under the scorching sun and being, you know, burned alive in the desert, so to speak, and they found refuge. And now they found a, a, their, their tears are now being wiped away. Tom, did you have? They came out of a great tribulation. Yeah. Tribulation tends to be something bad. It does. It does. <laughs> tends to be bad. Yeah, exactly. Tribula- they came out of tribulation. 
Um, and whether, again, whether that's a specific era of, of salvation history or not, uh, tribulation in one sense characterizes, Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation to all believers. Um, and so this idea of th- this was a hard, hostile world. There was suffering. There was groaning. There were tears. And um, what is their experience now? What was that? They have, a shepherd. they have a shepherd. How are they feeling about life now? <laughs> it's pretty good. They're 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 praising God. Um. They're 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 relieved of all that suffering. They're not crying anymore. They seem joyful. Would you say that's fair to say? They seem joyful. They're praising God loudly. Um, and where do we see the gospel reflected in their, in their lives, in their experience? I mentioned salvation the first time. Yeah, so they're praising God for salvation. God is the fountain of salvation and the one who deserves all the praise. Yeah, so they're... They're saved. They've been saved. Tom, yeah. Yeah, so they, they have, that's a good one. The blood of the lamb. I mean, we're talking about the cross, the atonement right there. And that purity, that they've been cleansed, they've been purified ultimately and fully now, fully, by the blood of Christ. Um, so what are they doing? They're, 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 They've been relieved of this suffering in this life, and they're in this place of joy, in this place of kind of fulfillment. And what they're doing is they're praising God for his character, I mean, just for who he is, his fullness, his glory, his wisdom, and and so on. But also, um, they're praising him for redemption, like Seth said. They're saying salvation. They're praising his salvation. They're praising the Lamb, which, again, this isn't just God vaguely. This is the God who, in Christ, atoned for their sins. And brought them into this place. So there's a sense that they're, they're, they're able to look back at the gospel and their salvation. Having gone through all these things and now being relieved of them. And their experience is just joy. And their experience is, they're not, they're not like, why did it have to be so hard? <laughs> they're not too worried about that, right? They're just relieved that they've gotten through it. That he's gotten them through it. And so there's a sense that those, those hard things have faded into memory and it's been swallowed by joy and praise. And the things that Christ has won for them have made every, every loss more than worthwhile. Um, so an eternal perspective, just thinking about yourself, like when I'm, when I'm at the throne praising God for all eternity in the new heavens and earth, whatever exactly that's going to look like, when I'm experiencing that, um, why does that help us with, with accepting God's change agenda over our own? Well, it does two things. First, an eternal perspective gives us hope as we're walking through the difficult road of change. So Christina said the older we get, the, um, the more that eternity matters. Because you start realizing, like, you start seeing the ceiling on, like, how good it's going to get in this life. And you're like, oh, you know, like, stuff's just going to be hard. There's going to be some things that are never fulfilled, some desires and longings that are never fulfilled. And and so, the, and, and just enduring it can feel so hard. It can be like, this is just not enjoyable in itself. 
And so in, in eternity says, this is all heading somewhere. And, in, and once, once eternity, once you're there, this will just be a, a faint memory. So that's one thing. It gives us endurance. And the second thing is it demystifies that the other changed things we might want. Are the other things that you might have put on your list that weren't godly, the things that in our hearts we want to see changed that aren't necessarily God's agenda for change. We've talked about idolatry. We've talked about contentment. Well, an eternal perspective puts those things in their place. We might get this thing where, like, I really want a better house, right? Like, I, or I'm, I don't own a home. I'm renting. I, can I, am I going to rent my whole life? In this economy, how am I ever going to buy a house? You know, it might be that kind of thing. And your mind, you're just like, I cannot be happy unless I'm a homeowner. Like, they get so fixed on that. And then in view of eternity, you're like, oh, I guess that won't ultimately end up mattering all that much, will it? Um, but this happens so much in our lives that the things that we long for, they're like, I really want to see this change. It's not sanctification. Eternity helps put it in its place. It's like, oh, okay, that's a good desire, but it kind of takes the power away, that eternal perspective. So um, kind of a long quote from our authors, but I think it just really encapsulates this point and even how it, how it feeds into accepting the change that God wants to do in our lives. So they say this, quote, When you keep your eyes on this destination, eternity, and pursue the things that move you there, you can live securely in a world where it seems as if nothing is guaranteed. You will not escape the difficulties of life, but you can rest assured that your Savior will use each one to prepare you for the place he is taking you. Think about it for a moment. You can be at peace even though you do not know how today's drama will end or what tomorrow will bring. You can live with joy even when things make you sad. Christian joy is not about avoiding life while dreaming about heaven. It is about taking an utterly honest look at all earthly life through heaven's lens. There we find real hope. End quote. So eternity puts us all in perspective and causes us to rejoice and accept the change that God is meaning to do in our lives, even though uh, the class sessions can be pretty, pretty rough in the, in the midst of it. Any other thoughts about this eternal perspective and, and the role that it plays? Or how to, maybe how to cultivate it in our lives? Okay, how do, you, how do we think about eternity more? <laughs> I would say just, and it's kind of connected to everything we've been talking about, but just spending time reading and meditating on God's word Mm -hmm. because everything in God's word is ultimately pointing towards that. Yeah. And, you know, if we read the Bible and if we read it carefully, um, we can see everything moving in that direction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, that in a lot of ways, that is also one of the primary ways that God does change us is through Mm -hmm. his word, right? Yeah. I mean, in that second Peter passage, he talks about, the promises that God's mm-hmm. made as being one of the main things that actually brings yeah. about this change. And so, yeah, just, just spending time reading and meditating on and even, I don't know, like memorizing God's words mm-hmm. so you have it ready to go when you're tempted to want something you shouldn't want or when you're not sure about whether the desires you have line up with what God says. Yeah. Yeah, so just a heart saturated in God's word will, because one of the things is promises for where everything is going. 
which, yeah, that's good. Second Peter said his precious promises are part of that arsenal that equip us for God, life and godliness. That the more we're saturated in those promises and the whole biblical story in which they, that, that, they, they, that they culminate, we'll more and more have that perspective and, and the issues we're, we're, we're dealing with in our own lives. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I think, I've never been able to, not been able, no, I've never, I've never like consistently done this for long stretches of time, but I've had times in my life where I've tried to like meditate on heaven for like five minutes a day or meditate on hell for five minutes a day. Um, not because I'm thinking I'm going to go there, but just to give me a sense of urgency regarding others. But um, yeah, we don't do that very much. Just try it. It's like you realize, like, I never think about it. <laughs> I don't know, maybe you do. I realize I very scarcely spend more than a few passing seconds thinking about eternity. But just sit there for, like, five minutes. Take a, a text like this, you know, like Re- uh, Revelation 7 or some other text about eternity or hope, and just sit there and, and mull it over for a few minutes, which sounds really pedestrian, but it's honestly, like, it can be pretty powerful. Um, just getting that in our, in our vision. Yeah, Christina. I think often part of that meditation is realizing, like, I think that when I was again, when I was younger, versus, like, it's easier to think about heaven when you're going through hard things. Yeah. It's like where it's like, okay, well, this is broken, and this is, you know, this is not how it's supposed to be, and heaven is how it's supposed yeah. to be. Yeah. Um, and so that that disparity, but like when things are good and we are praising God and we are enjoying His goodness and His blessings and we are thankful for those things. Even realizing that that is just a dimly, yeah, a dim reflection of what the you know the fullness of yeah. our joy and our you know, mm. with God will be in heaven. That we're just getting a picture of it. You know, it's like when we enjoy yeah. things here on earth. It's just you know, it's like it's not the real thing yet. And um, so mm-hmm. we can like apply that to our good and our bad. Yeah, um, so true. So in the, in the worst moments, it's like that. It may be easier for us to meditate on heaven, and it's good to do so. But then, in the highest moments of joy in this life, to go, ah, we're just tasting little little droplets of what will be an ocean of blessing and enjoyment of God. Yeah, that that can be a really powerful reflection as well. Just kind of writing with whatever life looks like and think, what does this mean? What does this tell me about eternity? Yeah, good. Well, um, we've seen today God challenging um, the ways that we might want to see life change with His better plan for our likeness to Christ, our um, sanctification, and Matt said, our love of Christ himself, and being prepared for eternity. And just something to let set with each of us and maybe do some prayer over this over this week and just kind of ask, like, God, I'm in, I'm in this course. We're, we're thinking about change in my life. And are there ways that I've sort of adopted desires and goals for my life that don't match up with yours, with, with what in Christ I know you want for me and even to ask him to give you insight and as Zach said you might talk to somebody else about it you might find a brother or sister you can kind of kind of uh, reflect together um, but God's God's plan is is our joy and uh, it is often a road of suffering I think of Romans eight seventeen that we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him that the path for Jesus to glory was through suffering and it's the same shape. It's not the exact same suffering, but it's the same shape for us as Christians, that we will be glorified with him as we uh, get to the end of the road of suffering in imitation of him. And so we're on that road. We groan. We sigh. We sometimes wonder if it's worth it. And uh, God's word tells us it's worth it. 
And so just uh, something to be um, I, identifying that in our hearts and, and prayerfully trying to get our hearts to the place of saying, yes, God, I want what you want. I want that. I want to be on that road and owning that eternal perspective that, that makes sense of all these things. This is not just a one-time choice. It's an ongoing daily battle of, of our hearts before God and how we pray and, and these things. I hope even some of the ideas that we've thrown out there could help with how this might look day to day. So I'm going to close this in prayer. If there's anything uh, you want to talk about or ask uh, afterward, I'm glad to do that. Father God, we thank you for saving us in Christ and not only just leaving us uh, merely legally saved, but then giving us your spirit and giving us the blessing of actually getting to be like Jesus and getting to love you instead of the inferior things that our hearts have found to love instead. And um, we confess that we are slow to see the, the superiority of your ways. We're slow to let go of, of contrary desires in our own hearts. But we confess that there's nothing happier than holiness. There's nothing happier than seeing you more clearly, fellowshipping with, fellowshipping with you more closely, uninhibited by sin. And we pray that you would continue to align our hearts to that change agenda so that we welcome whatever it is you may ordain for us and that we are becoming more like Jesus. We pray all this and thank you for this time we could study together. In Jesus' name, amen.